0: You are listening to the Tech Heads F1 podcast with Bryson, Molly, and Dr. Ops. back to the tech heads f1 podcast i'm your host bryson sullivan joined as always by my excellent co-host dr obs
1: and molly how are we today guys doing good bryson it was a great preseason test i'm still riding on the high of all the cars running around the track but i'm excited for the bahrain grand prix what about you molly
2: I'm doing good too. It was a great weekend of testing. I think we learned a lot and there are now more questions, I think, than we had before testing, but I am very much excited and riding the, the tech testing high into the race this weekend.
0: Yeah, I think we're recording this kind of in that minor lull between when testing ended and when the first Grand Prix is. And I remember musing a few days ago that once the F1 season starts, it's pretty much going to dominate every aspect of our lives until late November. So let's, let's enjoy this little reprieve while we have it. There there certainly are a lot of things that we want to talk about in regards to testing what we learned, what we didn't learn. But I also want to talk about a couple of brief news developments that happened recently. Most excitingly, is probably the removal of the final chicane at uh, the Circuit de Catalunya in Barcelona.
2: Yes. Cue the confetti poppers and like champagne pops from a podium. I think that was an incredible piece of news that excited a lot of people, the tech heads included. I think you've been campaigning for that for a long time, Bryson.
0: Uh, probably too long. So, so, so long, so long, in fact, that when the circuit to Catalonia released like a an image saying, you know, coming soon, you know, get ready for the, the Spanish GP. I was investigating the details of their logo design. And if you remember the logo for the circuit, never put that new chicane in there. So when I when I was seeing that I was like oh this is they're telling us like, they're dropping hints they were finally going to get you know the chicane removed and that was nonsense obviously it was just me you know just hoping for something but it actually ended up happening and what I wanted to kind of point out from a technical perspective of this topic is there's a lot of engineering and detailed work that had to go into analyzing what current cars with modern speeds, what they could actually do in that circuit configuration, and then adjust the barriers accordingly, not only in the last two corners, but also that speed that you carried in the final corner goes the entire length of the straight. And so now you're arriving at turn one with higher speed as well. And so the runoff areas and the barriers there had to be carefully evaluated to make sure that they maintain the current level of uh, standard for safety. And I think uh, Albel Fabrica, was one of the people who really kind of impressed upon me how much work is actually going on behind the scenes to take a change like this from concepts to reality.
1: Yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see the cars traveling at peak top speed down that street because that's going to be flat. Right. So I'm pretty sure that that corner is going to be flat or pretty close to flat. I'm really looking forward to driving it on F1 2023 when they release that, actually, just to see how flat it is. But I imagine it's going to be relatively flat. So you're going to be carrying quite a lot of speed. So, you know, we talk about porpoising, the P word, it's back. We had it during testing. It's back in our lives again. But the porpoising, you know, could potentially be an issue down that straight down there. But who's got the brakes, honestly, to be able to jam on the brakes for term one there? It's going to be quite, quite interesting to see. Yeah. And I think
0: one of the things that is an enabling factor for why we're allowed to make this change now, whereas people have been campaigning for it for years, but it wasn't really materialized I think one of the biggest factors is the ability of the new era cars, the ground effect cars to follow each other better in high speed corners, and also just the, the increased level of safety that the cars have now. You know, we've had modified safety tests since Guanyu crash last season, but in general, the cars have never been stronger and more able to handle impacts, including the halo as well. So I'm very much looking forward to going through this, this circuit in this new configuration. Believe it or not, even Lewis Hamilton has never driven the circuit to Catalonia without the chicane in a Formula 1 car. He started in 2007. So even someone as seasoned as Lewis Hamilton is going to find some new things, and I hope he enjoys it.
1: Is it the F2 and the F3 series that races without the chicane? I know that a
0: MotoGP races without it, for sure. Sure. And my understanding previously was that Formula 2 and Formula 3 race with it. I'm sure someone can can correct us if we're wrong about that. There's always been the question of of safety overall, and Formula One cars can just have so much higher cornering speeds. Uh, it's just a fundamentally different type of question than a than a bike. So that's where we go.
1: That's good. I think it'll be more conducive to passing for sure. I mean, you you've got that chicane is such a slow chicane. I mean, if you've got a Fernando Alonso train, you know, then it's like, you can pretty much back cars up into that chicane there and then just have a sprint down, the down the pit straight there. But
0: you have no idea how ironic that is, because in the old days, it used to be a truly train. Right, Yarno truly and and truly yeah. was Fernando's teammate at Renault, so it's slightly ironic that you're you're talking about an Alonzo train, but we'll we'll leave that alone.
2: What's terrible is I I'm at the point of my day where I'm like truly like the seltzers.
1: <laughs> no, truly, as in the uh, the Italian winemaker. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> that chicane. I'm so glad it's gone. Let's move on from it. Same. Honestly, it's gonna make passing better. Yeah, exciting. So as we
0: said, we just had three glorious days of testing. I know that there were some fans who reportedly were unhappy with the lack of action in testing. But my response to that, of course, is testing is about data, not entertainment. So sorry about that. But I think we learned a lot of things. I mean, we saw the RB19 for the first time we're able to actually pour over the details of it. And there are a lot of things we'd like to investigate there. But we also saw all the other cars on track in much more detail than we had seen previously. Some of them had a much more successful test than others related to reliability or pace or what have you. I think we'll go over this team by team, but was wondering before we even start doing that, was there anything that jumped out at you from testing that was kind of a surprise or something unexpected?
1: Yeah, I think something that definitely jumped out to me during testing was just to see the teams running different programs. So I'll give you an example. You know, Ferrari, they ran a low downforce wing and then they switched over to a high downforce wing. Whereas Red Bull pretty much just ran that medium downforce wing the whole time. Mercedes ran the high downforce wing. And people are kind of, you know, the casual viewer might look at that and go, why would you do that? I mean, okay, we talked about sandbagging, right, during the last episode. So maybe that's something that could have been happening with a high downforce wing. But the way I see it is the data that you get for the car configuration that you have is good data. It doesn't matter what wing you have on. It doesn't matter what ride height you're running. You're generating valuable data. And so when I look at the Mercedes with the high downforce wing, and I'm thinking if there's a way for you to essentially disturb the rear flow of the car Significantly, you would want to do that with a high do- downforce wing. I think that's where are going to have very high pressure gradients as well. And that might help you with correlation, possibly when you're talking CFD or wind tunnel models and things like that. So I- I'm thinking maybe that's one of the reasons why they ran the high-, high downforce wing.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were a number of different configurations that we saw on track regarding Mercedes specifically. It, it is true that they chose a high downforce wing. It seems like the consensus is a high downforce configuration would lead you to the minimum margin for porpoising. So if you really want to evaluate whether or not you design that feature out of your car, you'd run a maximum downforce swing to really push the car towards the track and really see how close you came to porpoising. But at the same time, you know there's an interview that Mike Elliott gave with Ted Kravitz in his development corner where he essentially suggested that they just have a lot of new data to gather with this car. And changing downforce levels as a function of time of day and session and everything else was probably more variables than they wanted to introduce into analysis. Now, the caveat here is you could say, well, why wouldn't you just run the target downforce level, medium downforce level wing, the entire test that gives you the same benefit? But again, there may have been some desire to draw out that porpoising issue, make sure it was really gone. With regard to Ferrari, there was an interesting technical development there with a number of different wings that they evaluated. Not only did they evaluate a very low downforce wing and then sort of a, a more medium downforce wing one with a little bit more, a deeper section, they also evaluated the difference between having two support pylons, which they normally have for their rear wing, and then one large pylon, which we'll generally call the, the Y-lon, <laughs> essentially because of the shape that it has. If you have two pylons for the rear wing, it's obviously pretty simple to have the exhaust go in between them. There's no real conflict there. But If you try to reduce that to a single pylon in the center of the rear wing, suddenly you have a a conflict with the exhaust. And so the two solutions are to either sort of cut the exhaust somehow and have that pylon go in the middle, which is dangerous, or to have a a Y-shaped fork at the base of the pylon in order to sort of straddle the exhaust. And that seems to be what people have gone with. That shape is why we call it a a Y-Lon. And I do expect that to be shown on the Ferrari during the race. I also expect them to have their Mercedes-style slot gap separators for the front wing. And in fact, I expect two or three more teams to join them in adding those type of slot gap separators. I know Mercedes says that the gains are marginal there, but there's a reason why they designed them. There's a reason why they built them. and There's a reason why Ferrari adopted them as well. So one of the things I'm looking forward to during the Bryan Grand Prix Is not only do I want to see all of the cars racing each other, but we're actually going to see a different design specification of the cars in the race than we saw in testing.
1: I guess one question that I want to present to both of you is, with this YLON and this dual pylon, could they run this in a certain track configuration to make it a track-specific solution? Meaning they don't just necessarily maybe choose one, because it seemed to be quite easy for them to be able to change this. Could they set it up to where they use one configuration for one track, they might use another? That's something we haven't seen before, right?
0: We've seen y before, and we have seen them in track-specific configurations before. But I think one of the questions that people are trying to evaluate is, how much drag reduction do you get from a design like that versus how does that affect the structural integrity of the rear wing assembly? Is it strong enough to be able to handle the loads that you're putting on it? And, and what are the what are the costs and benefits of doing that? I'm not informed enough to say exactly how that would shake out because even if you reduce the number of pylons... If the previous number of pylons were smaller in size, the sum of those two might actually be less drag than one large one. It, it's a kind of a complicated question. But certainly, I, I definitely think that we could see circuit-specific configurations. One thing you have to be careful of is, and Ferrari fell follow of this, you can have issues with DRS when you change rear wing assemblies from one to the other. And Ferrari did seem to have a DRS issue that they fixed by going to the previous specification rear wing. So hopefully they have that fixed.
2: I could be mixing cars up. Isn't the RB18 a Y-Lon and they notoriously have some DRS issues throughout the year? It's kind of a potential failure mode of that, I believe, with the loading and the DRS actuator. The RB19 now, too, its successor also has the y
0: I think you're right. I think I think it actually does. I think probably most teams have it, actually. I mean, the, the ones that don't have a, a big, large swan neck, there are two pylons, which is still different from Ferraris, which is very tiny, very uh, unique design, which you can spot from a mile away. But, you know, Y-Lons are actually very popular, and I expect more teams to go in that direction if they can find performance benefit there.
2: I think what stuck out to me from testing, jumping off of like what Dr. Abs was saying, because the different programs was something that really stuck out to me And some of the visualizations was trying to understand setup-wise to what teams were after, because you'd see a car running and just dragging the hell out of their rear. Sorry, sorry for my language, but you're just running the plank along the rear and throwing sparks for an entire lap. I think there were a couple of really good shots of Alpine with that and Red Bull as well. Where you could tell that they were either running really, really low in their ride height or they were running a suspension setup. They were doing something. There was a lot of experimental setup work, it seemed like, happening that I was picking up on outside of just the body work changing or some of the different aero pieces that they were changing. There was some really, really intentional setup work being done and trying to correlate that back to what they were doing with the downforce on the car with maybe their high or mid or low with what the teams were doing and what the tires were on and what they were trying to correlate. Laid out to was something that stuck out to me. We saw a lot of race simming and long simming that was interesting to me. And then we saw some short running the third night where it seemed like it was really focused on quality sims and single lap pace runs. And then you have a team like Halpine, who I don't think touched a soft tire or the softest, quickest tires the whole test, which that was a huge thing that stuck out to me
1: mm-hmm. from the
2: entire weekend is that they didn't touch anything below the C3, I think it was. They didn't touch a single soft tire that whole three days, which was really interesting from a testing goals and compared to everybody else's test programming standpoint.
0: Yeah. When we talk about sandbagging, we talk about we don't know what the fuel loads are. We don't know what the engine modes are. We don't know how hard the driver themselves are, are pushing. But a huge factor in that as well is is tire compounds. Right? Are you running mm-hmm. soft tires? Are you running them with in combination with low fuel? And you're absolutely right. alpino was... Is- almost unjustifiably confident after the test if you were just basing on their lap times as far as how well their performance was. But for precisely this reason, they didn't have a qualifying simulation. They didn't have a a traditional glory run that you might see towards the end of testing. I think there's a reason why they're so bullish about their chances. Everyone's talking about Aston Martin That's mostly based on some of their long-run pace that Fernando Alonso did. But at the same time, I think we shouldn't totally discount Alpine as a potential disruptor to the order of things. Just quickly speaking about tire compounds as well, the Mercedes W14 seemed to have a very uneven type of performance during the three days of the testing. The first day seemed to be very good, just figuring out, you know, largely speaking what the car could do. The second day was was very rough, and then the third day was, was a bit better, but the performance seemed to be very dependent on tire compound. The car seemed to perform very well on the C5 and C4 tires. When it got down to like the C3 and C2, you know, it was understeer going into the corner, oversteer on the exit. It just seemed to not be able to get the tires in the working window the way that you'd really like to be able to see. So I'm very curious to see what Mercedes brings to the table in the race to address that particular aspect of the performance. Because as we said, you can't always look into lap times in isolation, but you can read the body language of a car. And if there is something fundamentally wrong in terms of what the driver is expecting to be able to do and what the car actually can do, that can give you a, a big insight into the performance of the car, despite what the lap times might say.
1: And let's talk about tires a little bit now as well, because we did have a change to the tire compounds this year, right? So Pirelli has addressed some of the complaints that the teams have, certain drivers had about the tires essentially falling away, having a weak front end, right? So... This is something that Pirelli has addressed with the updated compounds this year. So thinking about why you would run all of the compounds during testing, this is one of the reasons. Even though during the Bahrain Grand Prix, we're going to have the C1, the C2, and the C3, so the C4 and the C5 won't even feature during that race. It's important for the teams to also get some running on that C4 and that C5 to be able to understand the handling characteristics, the behaviors of the tire, because I can't remember if it was one of our previous guests if it was if it was Blake or, or whoever that we had on but we were talking about the simulators and how you get kind of that track simulation done and tires is one of the biggest things that they have trouble really theoretically simulating the performance of. So they need to have on-track data. They need to have real run data for them to be able to then update their models to get accurate models. So even though they might not run a C4, C5 in Bahrain, that might benefit you later in the calendar year, right, where you've got that data now.
2: For anybody curious, that episode is episode eight that we had featuring uh, Blake, or everybody knows him as Barake, where we do talk about that simulator and tire performance uh, in that episode at length. Jumping back with the Alpine, though, I think they stumped a lot of people, like Bryson was saying, during their test. The, the behavior of the car seemed weird. The stance seemed weird. But it, it seemed like there was a lot of intentional setup work going on. But it's also important to keep in mind that they made some significant changes to the car for 2023 from 2022 that would affect its kind of, I would say, its on-track behavior. They made a rear suspension change from a pull rod to a push rod. Which is a pretty big change. And then they also came down from their centerline cooling. So rather than being stacked a lot higher up, which is kind of that Renault Alpine signature power unit integration, they've come back out wider with some of the improvements that they've made to the power unit. So that will affect things like their car's center of gravity because you can now come down out of that likely higher COG. It'll affect the center of pressure of the car. So I think just coupled with these tweaks and, and these bigger changes that they have made, it does change the behavior of the car, and and I don't know why it has people kind of freaked out and rattled because I think, like Bryce was saying, they came very confident out of that test, and I, I think that that's a, that's a car to watch for this season based on their 2022 car performance and where they seem to be headed for 2023.
0: I completely agree, Molly. There, there definitely are aspects to the performance of cars in testing that it requires a bit of work to actually figure out what they're actually doing. Yes, the old trope is lab times don't mean anything in testing or testing doesn't mean anything. It's not totally true lap times can mean something, but they mean something in context, right? What were the tire compounds that were being used at the time? Was it a long run? Was it a short run? What time of day was it? Was it during the nighttime when the track is cooler, you can get more performance? There are so many factors involved that you can actually derive useful information from. It just requires a bit more work. And I do kind of want to take this opportunity to sort of give a shout out to one of the previous guests on our podcast, F1 Data Analysis, also known as Mirko. He does some really excellent derived very variables from testing as you all know, you know fast F1 is a software package that allows us to get access to GPS data speeds and, and timing and things like this but if you have the time and energy and skill you can actually use that data to derive accelerations longitudinal acceleration lateral acceleration you can see which cars are best on the brakes or out of traction zones and who had the best cornering and this is one of the areas where Red Bull seem to be really far and away the best car in some corners they I think it might They've been turn 12, they may have been a, a full G superior in lateral acceleration compared to some of the other cars. So it just gives us another layer of data to evaluate.
1: And I think one of the things we saw with the Ferrari, for instance, was how many Gs they're able to pull in braking as well. So that was very impressive to see that, you know, the Ferrari itself seems like it's really strong on the brakes, you know, tracks where you've got extremely long like, like we were talking about with the Cir- Circuit de Catalunya, right? It's kind of that sort of a thing. You've got a long straight and then you've got a hard braking zone. Bahrain is similar, right? When you're braking into turn one there. So the Ferrari looks good. Exit traction, entry braking uh like i said the red bull seems to have improved a bit as you mentioned in high speed cornering which is a bit where they were weak last year so they seem to have done quite a bit of work there with the floor secretly i mean yeah look i'm a red bull guy but i would like to see the red bull floor so i wouldn't be too upset if we got a good look at it <laughs> but yeah we
0: we have to we have to caveat this we have we have to talk about this because in the previous episode we kind of unwittingly may have contributed to the downfall of Mercedes and a few other teams, we were saying the thing that we were hoping most to see was a car, you know, sputtering to a stop and, and, and stopping in being lifted up onto the car. We'd love to be able to actually see the underfloor It ended up being George Russell most conspicuously. But that being said, you know, the engineers did take their time and cover the, the car up in a sort of a cloth bag very carefully to make sure no one could see the floor. But I imagine they're not going to have that luxury in the races. They're just going to have to do with whatever the marshals say is appropriate and most time efficient. One of the things I wanted to point out that you were mentioning, Dr. Opt, about the Ferrari braking performance is last year we seem to have this dynamic where Red Bull had phenomenal top speed but not as amazing cornering. And Ferrari had amazing traction, amazing cornering, but not quite as much top speed. It seems like based on the articles that I've been reading, Ferrari has tried to address that gap a little bit, where they may have sacrificed a little bit of the cornering performance for a better top speed. And if you look at the top speed traces from testing, Red Bull definitely did have the highest top speed, but it wasn't like a 10 or 14 kph difference. Now, it was like two or three. Ferrari has a, a much more slippery car uh, this season. Mercedes was probably at the bottom of the, of the sheets in terms of top speed performance. But we already discussed previously that was a result of that barn door rear wing they chose to fit. So there, there are a number of things that we can look at if you understand the context a little bit better.
2: Yeah, I was just going to throw out that that's pretty much a great way to put to bed the argument of, would you rather have a car that's the fastest overall car with the fastest top speed or would you rather have a car that might be slower but more balanced and have a better aero design or, or more efficient aerodynamic features versus the most power overall or with the highest possible top speed out of the field?
0: And that's what makes Formula One so challenging is that the optimum car design is not a single point in isolation. It depends on what the calendar is. H- how many Monzas, how many Jettas are there on the calendar versus Hungary, Monaco, etc. So the design that you center on depends on your knowledge of what the calendar season is going to look like. And even your performance in the test to a degree has circuit-specific factors to it. We remember in the Barcelona test McLaren last year looked pretty amazing. And then they got to Bahrain and it was a totally different story. A big part of that was due to the braking issues that they were suffering with. And the circuit to Catalonia has far less braking requirements than Bahrain does. Bahrain is a very much a very start, stop, hard braking, you know, very slow minimum apex speeds, hard traction events. It has a very different nature to some other circuits. And so even if a team isn't lighting up the timing screens in the Bahrain test, that doesn't mean they're going to absolutely perform poorly in other circuits, you know, Melbourne and, and Jeddah and the like.
1: And I think something else this addresses is just the perception that having the wider and larger side pods is just immediately going to be draggy, right? We've looked at Different CFD simulations that other people have run on, you know, that are widely available on F1 Technical or other websites like that. And the things that you actually see from that is that it's the front tire wake or the front tires, the rear tires, the front wing, the rear wing, all of these things are predominantly dominating the drag profile for your car. It's the side pods are really just a small piece of that. So when you look at the Ferrari designs, the Red Bull designs, even for instance the W, let, let's talk about the W13. We'll bring up that that bad girl for <laughs> again. Uh, it was draggy, right? Is the issue that they said, but it had relatively no side pods. So it's kind of like there's so much more going on there, and it's really about the aerodynamics from tip to tail that's giving you that overall drag profile. So it's balancing. Like you said, the slippery nature of the car, how fast is it in a straight line, how much cornering speed can you maintain cornering downforce without sacrificing, you know, things like traction, for instance, and things like that as well. Drag is such
0: an interesting factor because there's really at least two elements to it at most subsonic speeds. Um, We're really talking about like the baseline drag, which is like the drag that the car has inherently bluff body type of drag. And then there's the induced drag, the drag that comes from generating downforce, and both of those things are interrelated it's true that you may have a car that has a high degree of baseline drag Let's also not forget, if your floor isn't working as intended, you have to rely on your rear wing more than your floor proportionally to generate your target downforce level. Wings are much less efficient than floors in terms of generating downforce, which is to say there's more drag per you know kilo of downforce for a rear wing than there would be for a floor. And that has a penalty as well that I'm sure Mercedes suffered with last season. So it's one of those things that you always have to keep an eye on. And this is actually a good segue into talking about McLaren. And their performance during testing, because not only did they have some reliability issues, not necessarily even powertrain reliability, but just mechanical integrity of certain parts of the car, including the the wheel deflectors from the from the front wheels, but they also had uh, explicitly not met their performance targets for the car, the aero performance targets, and one of the items specifically mentioned by Andrea Stella was aero efficiency, which you can think of as kind of a, a ratio of lift to drag. It's more like a, a coefficient of performance than efficiency because efficiency is bounded by by one and COP is not. But generally speaking, if you don't make as much lift as you want to for a given drag level, or you're making too much drag for a target downforce level, that really determines your aerodynamic efficiency. And it was something that McLaren just didn't hit so far in their testing.
1: And I think a good a good point of that that you mentioned is the difference between the downforce that you get from the floors versus you know the dirty downforce like the front and the rear wing. So maybe we could also kind of explain to some of the viewers as well why that is because the wings themselves you know have profiles that essentially you know are disturbing the flow and anytime that you disturb the flow as it moves around a shape like the shape of a rear wing or the shape of a front wing you're actually take removing energy from that flow you're then that's turning into either induced drag or you know straight line drag or you know downforce so in some form or fashion you're generating something from that straight line you know free stream energy that's there The floors themselves do this in a way that's extremely efficient because it just transforms that pressure essentially into suction through uh, reducing the volume that the air is moving through, right? So it accelerates the air and then thereby reduces the pressure as a result of it. So this is a very clean way to generate downforce versus very dirty downforce with rear wings and front wings. It's also why we've gone to the ground effect Era cars is because this is all in an effort to reduce the dirty downforce, which generates that really dirty wake. So all of these things are interrelated, maybe just for some of the listeners that don't understand that.
0: Yeah, I was just hoping we could talk a little bit more about floors and diffusers because there's a point that I think you'd mentioned previously about the RB19 diffuser. And one of the things that we had talked about in this era is, again, we're trying to maximize the kind of performance of the car from the floors. They're the most important feature of these ground effect cars. And you have defined legality boxes where the body work can be, what the outer boundary of the diffuser needs to be. And one of the things that you notice, Dr. Robs, that I'm I also am seeing now in the pictures that are being circulated is Red Bull doesn't actually use the maximum volume available for their diffuser based on the FIA legality dimensions. What they actually do is they back off the roof of the diffuser a little bit in order to give them the real estate to add a curl trailing edge, like a, a gurney flap, to the back end of the diffuser. Which in the past has been extremely beneficial for improving the maximum downforce it can create. I'm just curious what your thoughts are uh, with regard to that.
1: Yeah, we we know how much you love gurney flaps, Bryson, and so I'll leave the explanation of how a gurney flap works to you after after this. But for, for,
0: people, just, who know, for people who
1: don't know, people don't know gurney <laughs> flaps are amazing. The the simplest aerodynamic <laughs> device
0: imaginable, and yet they're so powerful. We'll talk about it later. But yes, this is
2: a gurney flap stand podcast. <laughs> this is <yeah.
1: laughs> weird gurney I am, flap I am, I am pro. I am pro <laughs> gurney flap objectively. <laughs> Absolutely, but but what you what you said is right on the point there. I mean the interactions of the diffuser and not just obviously the volume of the diffuser, but the shape of the diffuser, whether it's the shape on the sides, which are closest to the rear tires, or it's the top surface, which is effectively just underneath the beam wings. It you know, it doesn't matter if you have a W14, if you have a Ferrari, if you have an Aston Martin or a Red Bull, all these cars are trying to do the same thing, and that's feed massive amounts of air to the rear part of the car. You get all the air under the car, and then you need to then feed lots of high energy air to the beam wings over the top of the diffuser. And how that flow moves over the top of the diffuser is also going to affect the pressure At the exit of the diffuser, which is going to help you with floor extraction, and floor extraction is just a fancy way of saying that you can basically run a lot more air through the flow faster at a higher volumetric flow rate than you could without that proper extraction. Right? You might have then some blockage, and this would basically be like a pressure blockage at the exit rather than essentially sucking the air through the floors. But Bryson, do you want to explain a little bit how a gurney might help a little bit with extraction?
0: I do want to get into the RB19 side pods as well and sort of deeper undercut eventually. But just to to briefly talk about the gurney flap, it's quite interesting because aviation and the aerospace industry and motorsports feed off of each other. There are things that, that come from aerospace that are found in motorsports and then vice versa. The gurney flap is named after Dan Gurney, who was the first person to use it. And I guess it was first analyzed in a theoretical sense and in an experimental sense by Bob Liebeck. He used to work for Douglas Aircraft. He was one of the first people to create an a, a experimental uh, evaluation of it and also to do a theoretical framework. But fundamentally, what it does is we think about the Kutta condition in aerodynamics, which is essentially a condition that says that the flow needs to leave the trailing edge smoothly. The pressure and velocity are the same on either side of the trailing edge. There's some theoretical details there, but that's essentially the condition that allows you to generate lift in any kind of body. And it, it varies the circulation of the airfoil as you change the angle of attack to vary the lift. But what's interesting about that is a gurney flap kind of modifies the kind of condition. It actually locally gives you a bit more vorticity than you'd have otherwise, which helps to reduce the adverse pressure gradient on the suction side as you go towards the trailing edge. And also helps to um, create a minor stagnation region on the pressure side to help sort of add a little bit of extra load on the back end. And so if I were to draw a picture of pressure coefficient for the top and bottom surfaces of an airfoil as a function of distance, what the gurney flap does is it widens the back end of that profile. So instead of the top and bottom pressures meeting exactly to be the same at the back end of the trailing edge, it allows you to have some separation there, given the results that I mentioned previously. And one of the reasons why this is so advantageous, not only for wings, but also for diffusers and and other high-lift devices is it allows you to get more lift out of, or more downforce in this case, out of the geometry prior to having an aerodynamic stall or a flow separation. Now granted, there's obviously different types of stalls. There's like leading edge stall and there's trailing edge stall. and There's all kinds of geeky details that we can get into. But really what this is helping to avoid is is trailing edge stall, something that would be extremely beneficial for a diffuser. The one key thing I want to bring attention to is the gurney flap Traditionally, is a right-angle device that's pointing towards the pressure side of of an airfoil or diffuser. What's kind of cool about the Red Bull designs and some of the designs we saw in, in previous F1 cars, uh, this is curved. It's got a bit larger radius of curvature, which helps make that that transition even a bit more gradual. I'd love to actually analyze that more. I did spend a little bit of time in a in a previous job analyzing gurney flaps on gas turbine engines and the, the low-pressure turbines of jet engines. It helps just as much there as other places, but the drag penalty is somewhat different. But just briefly, yeah, gurney flaps are a very simple, very efficient design for improving the loading of the wing and also improving the margin to stall.
1: Yeah, and I think I feel a tech bite coming on on gurney flaps at some point. I think we that would be a really valuable one that we, we should put out there because you not only see you know, predominantly you'll see the gurney flaps on rear wings and you'll see them on front wings as well, which is, you know, traditionally where you see them, but we do have the curl. So you did want to also talk about the side pod, right? So the RB19 side pod was really interesting when we saw it. We no longer had to look at the Bigfoot photos, the grainy images. We got a clear view now. To see the side pod and the thing that changed is that the profiling along the side of the side pod itself has changed slightly but really the most obvious thing that we saw was the depth of the undercut that was running underneath the side pod which uh, if you haven't seen, you know, our tech bites, we do have a YouTube channel, and uh, we did do a tech bite on the Red Bull side pod on the floor edge. So go check that out for a very detailed understanding of the way that it works. But it's essentially just a real clean way to get air to the rear portion of the car, and it's basically like a double floor. Essentially, is the way that it works.
0: What I found really interesting about the evaluation of that deeper undercut for the RB19 side pod is that that was one of the big examples of flow viz that we saw during testing. We were able to sort of artificially enhance some of the images that we saw to make it a little bit more clear. But you can see flow clearly going in an attached sense all the way from the nose, all the way to the back. Really quite brilliant. And there were some people who were unjustifiably alarmed when they're trying to look at the comparison between that flow viz and what the W14 flow viz looked like on George Russell's car. They didn't really stop to think that actually George Russell stopped on track, and he didn't actually get a chance to do the full flow viz and actually yes. see the, the, the paint streaming off the car. Not to mention the fact that the design is totally different with the vertical inlet the side pod versus horizontal. That's a whole separate question about that. But I, I thought that the RB19 side pod was really interesting because... It's almost like a much more refined and effective version of what I think some teams were trying to do early last season, notably Aston Martin and perhaps Alfa Romeo in the very, very early versions of their car They had this big, massive undercut all the way from the front of the side, all the way to the back, and the top that was sort of slightly but but not quite. What's interesting about Red Bull's design is they give a very clean and well-refined shape for the flow to go down off the top of the side pod towards the beam wing and diffuser if it wants to but with this deep undercut they also provide a clear channel for any clean air that happens to be towards the nose a little bit lower down to actually flow all the way to the back end as well and it's such a tricky design because you're trying to provide as many sources of clean flow to the beam wing and the diffuser as possible while simultaneously keeping that front tire wake outboard. And you don't want one to contaminate the other. And so I just want to give the Red Bull Engineers credit for not only coming up with a design in principle, but in practice actually working out the details to make it work. Because as I said, if you give the flow in that undercut too much space, maybe it's totally unconstrained, maybe it stalls under turning, or maybe it doesn't flow all the way to the rear, or if you don't guide the flow enough on the top of the side pod, it might be, you know, unconstrained. It does just enough of both of these, I think. So I can definitely see the evolution versus revolution theme in terms of the design of the 2023 cars, but it seemed like a a real improvement.
1: Yeah, and maybe we can also talk about the updated floor edge as well while we're kind of in in this region of the car as well. So we've seen a lot of really cool developments in the floor edges of the cars ever since we saw the first car in 2022. And I don't expect that during the course of the year that we will stop having innovation in this portion of the car. So why is the floor edge so important? It's because when you look at the tunnels that are underneath the car, you know, we've seen a few shots, we were talking about seeing the underside of the car, you really only effectively have one tunnel, which is going straight back through the floor. And then you've essentially got three tunnels, which are just outwashing the flow to the sides of the floor edge. It's very important for generating vorticity in the tunnels, right? Because the harder that you can outwash it, the stronger the vortices can be that you can generate and run through the length of the floor. So that's vortex-induced suction, which is very important. But the other thing that it does is also helps with like you talked about, you know, keeping the front die wake outboard and away from the body and away from the beam wing and the diffuser and everything. It helps with that as well. So a lot of these floor edge curls, these treatments and things like that are helping with kind of that performance, that extraction in the outwashing region. And Red Bull actually kind of created like a cascading wing, which was really cool. I think that's the first time I've seen it. Most of the times we've just seen like a strong curl, almost like a gurney, <laughs> talk about gurneys, but this was like a cascading wing, effectively. And uh, it's really trick. Um, I don't know fully the details on the legalities of it. I know, you know, you've got the whole two section rules along the edges of the floor. So they had to, you know, satisfy that for sure. But um, it's it would be interesting to really dive into that deep to understand how they were able to make that legal.
0: Yeah, I think Molly has something to add about the Ferrari power units, but just briefly before we get to that, I wanted to just talk a little bit about all the photos that we saw of locked wheels into turn ten. Uh we saw the Ferrari, you know, we saw the Mercedes and 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 Red Bull. You know, I, I will say that smoke is definitely a, a better flow visualization tool than water spray. So that's definitely a good thing. But there's some important caveats to that as well. A locked tire, by definition, has different airflow around it than a rotating tire. So that's something you have to be a little bit careful of when you're looking at that. And also, you have to make sure the two cars that you're looking at are in the same phase of the corner, that the wind conditions are similar, that the tire compound is similar. I mean, there are a lot of things that you have to keep your eye on when trying to infer conclusions from this. But prima facie, for what it's worth, for what I saw there definitely seems to be a lot more of that front tire wake creeping towards the inboard part of the rear tire for the W14 than it was for the the RB19. Again, we would need to see much more detailed photos in more controlled conditions to say something definitive about this, but it was on its face an interesting way to evaluate how well each design handled that front tire wake with the necessary caveats.
2: Yeah, we might like tires locking up and smoking more than than a car on a hoist as, uh, as engineers and and tech nerds over here.
1: Yeah, and we got even nerdier because the... Let me make sure I'm saying this right, Molly. The Papaya Rari Bowl... Mm-hmm. Glorious.
2: Yes, what I have lovingly dubbed the McLaren.
1: Yes, so the Papaya Rari Bowl actually spun backwards. So we got reverse smoke flow visualization yes. of the air moving over the car in reverse and a it did treat. not look very clean, so... For anybody wondering, F1 cars are not meant to run run in reverse, but that was quite an interesting thing. But I think one of the things that I observed over the course of the test weekend as well was just the strength of the Ferrari PU. I know we had seen some stories about that. I don't know, Molly, if you wanted to mention some things around that as well.
2: Yeah, I... Still don't know what to make of the Ferrari power unit and and all of the promises of reliability improvement for 2023, obviously, with the potential for sandbagging this weekend. But it seems like that's going to be a big storyline and a big topic this season from a technical standpoint. And I'm optimistic for their improvements and for what this power unit could have in store for itself this season um, because it was... I believe the most powerful engine and power unit last year, but due to reliability concerns, had to be turned down and throttled back, pun intended, in order to preserve its ability to complete races and last intended mileage and get cars across the line. So whatever changes that they have been able to make, I look really forward to seeing those on track in a more truer race sense. But as for a what that could mean for Ferrari power, it, it'll mean that they have more power bands available to them and they could run some modes that maybe were considered off limits previously in 2022 where they could have said that they need to update modes or just throw these modes out um, because for reliability purposes, you can't run them. So I think it'll be interesting to see what that gets them in terms of gains, having maybe a, a larger band available to it because obviously with torque bands and mapping, if you run an engine too slow, you could stall it too fast, stuff can wear out or destroy itself or like throw rods through a block or something and it's and, and off to the sun, jettison it off to the sun. So there's a lot of things that can happen depending on where you've mapped your engine and the speeds in which the engine is delivering torque at and then obviously using the gearbox to translate that into exactly what you need for delivery of torque. But I, I think that that's one, there's still a lot of unknown in my opinion around that and around what they've improved, but I look forward to seeing what it it has in store. I think their turbo is going to be a big storyline with that engine because that turbo last year seemed to maybe have some mystique around it too. Had they split it, had they not split it, is it something called a, I think it's called a zero turbo where it's or net zero turbo where it's nestled in the V. Uh, so I think not only their turbo reliability, but turbo placement is going to be a big one. And I think, Bryson, you had something about Ferrari's turbo. You wanted wanted to lead us on.
0: Yeah, there were a couple of things actually. Just just briefly speaking about the power question, you know, prior to the Red Bull Ring, I would say that the Ferrari was probably comfortably like the best power unit. I mean, it just had a tremendous yeah. amount of grunt. Then they realized they were over stressing it towards the end of the season, and they had to back off quite considerably. I also wanted to say. It's not only the case that if a team has a great power unit that will automatically show up as higher top speeds. If you're if you're smart, what you'll do is, yes, you could take advantage of the higher top speeds with the same arrow setup, but you could also just run much bigger wing. You, you could run a lot more downforce and not pay a penalty in straight line speed, but reap the benefits in the slow speed stuff. So depending on the specifics of a track configuration, a higher power uh, output could result in either higher top speed or just better overall lap time for a higher downforce configuration. I think I think the consensus as far as Ferrari's split turbo was that they didn't split it, not so much because of what Ferrari themselves was saying, but because of what some of their customer teams were saying, you know, Haas, and Alfa Romeo, et cetera, and the crashes that they had, <laughs> which kind of exposed certain parts of the, of the engine. So my understanding is that they didn't split it, but I, what I actually wanted to focus on was how small their turbo is, Ferrari's turbocharger is actually a bit smaller on average than some of the other teams. And what that allows you to do is for it to spin up really quickly. And we were trying to sort of unravel this mystery of why Ferrari has such great low-speed traction and and low-end drivability. Part of the explanation, I think, has to do with the turbocharger and its size and its speed versus flow rate characteristics. And so that's something that could potentially limit you at some of like the really high altitude tracks where you need to flow a, a lot of airflow on top of being able to spool up quickly. But it's a characteristic feature of their power unit that I think we should definitely keep an eye on and maybe we can invite some guests onto the show who knows more about some of the, the details of it. But yeah, it'll be something to keep an eye on throughout the season and I'm I'm very much looking forward to it.
2: Yeah. And that spool up is important. We've talked about this previously is to prevent lag. And so lag is that a phenomenon between when I'm commanding what I want the car to do with my pedal position or so I'm putting the pedal to the floor and the turbo spooling up in order to deliver what is being asked of it. It's I just see it as a way to help improve lag in turbo lag and getting the engine up to speed at delivering what they need to by using such a small turbo it's it's an advantage inherently to such a small package that your lag and your your boost thresholds and all of your your thresholds in that turbo lag and and torque delivery region of the engine are a lot lower which is obviously advantageous.
0: We we got to also talk about Aston Martin at some point. We've kind of been skirting around it a little bit, but I kind of want to talk about why there seems to be so much hype around the team. And to his credit, you know, Mike Crack, a team boss at Aston Martin, was trying to back that off a little bit and sort of calm down the expectations. But one thing I was going to say is that this this uh, hype, so to speak, is not just coming from inside the paddock, it's coming from engineers as well, it's also coming from some of the data. Uh, we talked about Blake being on the podcast previously. He's done a lot of analysis of some of the runs that some of the teams did and Fernando Alonso's, you know, long run on a harder tire was really impressive, sort of metronomic efficiency as far as repeating lap times. And the overall pace was quite good. So good, in fact, that Fernando Alonso, based on his internal calculations, seemed to believe that his long run pace, at the same time that Ferrari was doing their long run pace, he seems to indicate that his was better than than theirs. And I'm not sure if that's just building up into the hype prior to the season starting, But there's certainly something there. It's definitely not nothing, so to speak. And as as I said before, Alpine is still kind of an unknown quantity, but Aston Martin is going to be a force to look out for.
1: Yeah. And when you look at, when you talk about tire degradation, the other thing that goes into that equation is how hard you're stressing the tires as well, right? So if he had such good lack of tire degradation, if he had lack of tire degradation, that also says that he probably wasn't pushing the car to the limits either. And he was putting in those times. So I think it's it's quite interesting. I know we had this. I feel like I was burned last year with the whole McLaren and Barcelona thing we talked about, right? And then they ended up just being a brick during the year. But I just you look at the AMR twenty three, and I think the first time that we saw it, just visually from an aerodynamic standpoint, we were really just impressed, you know, you with those super deep water slides and things like that. But then The evolution of the car over the course of the year last year was very interesting as well, right? You know, they kind of started with this whole, I call it like the UFO side pods, like it legitimately looked like UFO. (laughs) I've seen various versions of
0: it, but yeah, I mean, this is something, this is exactly what we're talking about before. It's a huge undercut that went the entire length of the side pod, and it seems like that's a little bit too unconstrained. Right, it gave the, the airflow too much room to move around. That's why I think the specific nature of the Red Bull deep undercut is noteworthy because there's a very specific contour that they've chosen there, specifically for aerodynamic reasons. And I imagine if you just kept the, a normal straight front-to-back curve, it would cause the flow problems, and they seem to have engineered their way around it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you've got you've got a car that's obviously got some pace, I mean from from what we've seen so far. So I'll just caveat that statement. But then you've got a driver who knows how to extract everything out of the car possible. I and mean, you look at what Fernando Alonso was extracting out of the Alpine last year. I, I mean, to think that if there's anybody who the AMR23 needs to be in the hands of, to get the most out of it, it's Fernando Alonso. And so I'm really excited. I mean, depending on who you believe and what outlets and data sets that you choose to believe as well. I mean, it looks like there's potentially, you know, Mercedes AMR kind of in the same uh, ballpark pace wise, potentially maybe creeping up towards Ferrari as well. So that would be a really interesting fight to see.
2: Yeah, I think one thing that I'm really excited to see this season is not only as we continue to learn on the learning curve of these new regulations is that what do we now see in the second year in terms of field shakeups? Are we going to see a team like Aston Martin that's normally a notorious midfield team, at least recently, now break through and become a top team? Are we going to see some shakeup in what we consider best of the rest, the top three teams, top four teams? Are we also going to see the pack tighten up further? Because I think last year we did see a tightening up of the pack that was kind of touted with these new regulations. I don't think it was tightened up in the way that a lot of people were thinking. It may have tightened up where the gap to the top three and the best of the rest of the midfield were, but we saw a really, really big tightening up of the midfield. And kind of the best of the rest of the field where that really, really tightened up. But then there was still this large gap to the top three teams. So I think this year it's going to be really interesting to see if do we have a breakthrough or do we really just see that gap go away between the top three teams and the midfield and start to gain the parity and kind of mix up the standings with these cars and with these teams in the series that these regulations set out to do.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's so interesting to see the parallels between what's happening now in the sophomore year of these regulations and what happened previously in 2010 after the 2009 regulatory shakeup, much for the same purpose of improving overtaking and improving the quality of racing. That was a pretty amazing season, the 2020-10 season, and so I do expect the overall field spread to sort of reduce. I expect the gap between the fastest car and the slowest car to reduce, and I also think that there's going to be some shakeups in the midfield, some surprising results. We didn't have any you know, race winners from outside of the top six drivers last season. I expect that to change, and I'm looking forward to it. As we're kind of rounding third base here, I just wanted to say also that there was some information about the W14 and the side pod design that we see, and actually the overall bodywork design that we see for the Mercedes W14 currently, we know if something is going to change in either the fifth or the sixth race of the season. So that might be, you know, Baku, the time timeframe. It's not totally clear exactly what that change is going to be seems to be very significant and whether or not it's implemented or what direction it chose they chose to go in is going to be strongly informed by how the car performs this weekend and then a few first races of the season so i'm very much looking forward to seeing what that actually produces we know that a season isn't won in the first five races won over the entire grand prix season it almost reminds me of 2021 <laughs> you know 2021 was one of those years where Mercedes was, was definitely not the fastest team in qualifying. And in, even in the first race, they weren't quite the fastest team. They still managed to pull some wins out of that. But at the end of the season, it was neck and neck all the way towards the back end. So I'm fully expecting a very competitive season, and I'm I'm deeply looking forward to it. I don't know about you guys.
1: Yeah, I I think from the test data, the thing that's got me the most encouraged is to see how the pack has tightened up, like you said, and also to see that, you know, the often speculated one second to one and a half second drop in performance that we were expecting to the raised floor edges and the raised diffuser throats, it doesn't seem to be present, right? I mean the cars are still very fast. So I don't think we're talking about slow cars on track. I think we're talking about closer racing and then that's really what we've been talking about from the start of discussion of these regulations is give it time you know for for these designs to start to converge a little bit and we are seeing that convergence so, you know, anytime somebody says, Oh, it's boring, this car looks like that car. It doesn't these cars don't look alike. They may be to the untrained eye, but there's a lot of nuances and very subtle things that are quite different. So this is what we need to tighten the pack up. And I think we're seeing that. And and now it's gonna start to really show how good the regulations are working because the pack will be relatively on pace.
2: Yeah, I've kind of said from the get go with the is that. I think some people, their expectations were that this was going to be kind of an on-off, like overnight kind of switch. And it's not regulations like this and especially such large philosophy changes for a series and for technical packages. They take time. They're still learning just as much as the series is and we are. And so it's starting to take shape, like you're saying with the design convergence. And I think we're starting to see it on the timesheets. And I think just overall, it's going to lead to a really banger of a season. And I think it's just really pushing the series in the right direction to tighten that field up and and bring the racing closer, not only on the timesheets, but on track.
0: Yeah, I think it's always the case that the field tends to diverge in the first year of new regulation set and then tend to converge back again afterwards. Ideally, what we're going to be getting is, yes, that process of divergence and then convergence. But at the end of it, we're going to have cars that are better able to race each other with the new aero regulations. And that's really the thing that I think all of this made worthwhile. I think that will really do it from us. I, I want to make sure we plug our socials now. Obviously, f one podcast is on Twitter at uh, f one we're also on Instagram and YouTube now, so please check those channels. I'll add links in the episode description. But yeah, very much looking forward to the rest of the season. Definitely looking forward to this weekend. I have absolutely no idea what to expect. I know someone's going to crash. I haven't decided <laughs> who it's going to be yet or how severe it's going to be. But there Or were.
2: where it's going to be
0: probably turn one yeah (laughs) probably probably turn one but (laughs) but i'm looking forward to an exciting season and i hope the rest of you guys are as well that'll do it from us and we'll see you guys next time
1: The file in the in the folder.
0: Yeah, the file. No, well, i I forced it to finalize, and so we can check it later. But I, you know, I could tell already that it was just going to be a problem. But the good news is, your signal quality is now green, Doctor
1: Robs. So yay! Yeah, my wife is watching Suits in the other room.
2: Don't
0: so don't put this on. Don't put this <laughs> on your wife. do down. Don't you immediately <laughs> put it on her? That's you're going to be in trouble later. I'm I'm confident of this. She can't hear me. I'm in my office.